Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to deal with the rising cost of inflation to pay off your debt or your mortgage, pretty much anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Well, with Yahoo Finance, you can get access to the news, data, and tools that you need in order to help you reach that financial freedom. And when it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. And now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination. That's yahoofinance.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. The Peter Schiff Show. Well, the U.S. dollar started out this morning on the defensive. Overnight, it had been down across the board. And then the government released the inflation numbers, at least the CPI version of the inflation, uh, at 8.30 this morning. And the dollar had a sharp reversal rising across the board and closing today's session pretty much on the highs of the day up against every currency. Gold, which was up about 6 or $7 before the CPI news came out, did sell off, but managed to close just off a buck or so. So obviously the price of gold was up against all the other currencies, but down a bit against the dollar. Let me give you the details on the April CPI. First of all, the headline number, right, according to the government, uh, April CPI was up just 0.1% on the month. And year over year, right, from April 2014 to April 2015, prices dropped, dropped negative 0.2. So that is the lowest CPI since October 2009 on a year-over-year basis. So October 2009, again, the Great Recession. So on headline CPI, this is the lowest number we've had since the Great uh, Recession. But the core, that's the number that caught the currency traders by surprise. The core, right, remember, which excludes food and energy, the core rose 03 And that was the biggest monthly jump since March of 2006. So what is that? You know, nine years ago almost, right? Year over year, the increase in the core was 1.8. And that is the biggest year over year increase going back to January 2013. So it's been over two years since the core CPI has risen by 1.8%. Now, this sent the dollar up on the anticipation or expectation that this makes a rate hike more likely, after all, increasing uh, consumer prices, 
uh, well, that's one of the Fed's benchmarks, right? If inflation comes up to that 2% level, they might raise rates. But I think that goalpost is just as real as the 6.5% unemployment goalpost. If we, ex- if we ever approach it, it will be moved back. Uh, traders still haven't figured that out. You know, interestingly enough, the biggest factor behind the 0.3% rise in the core was the 0.7% spike in healthcare costs, medical costs. That's the biggest monthly increase since January 2007. That is prior to Obamacare. So Obamacare was supposed to bring health care costs down, and now they're spiking. And by the way, that's also one of the reasons that consumers didn't get a bigger benefit from cheaper gas is they spent the savings on more expensive health care. Although now gasoline prices are rising along with health care and the price of everything else. So I don't think that this makes it more likely that the Fed's going to raise rates. First of all, I don't think they're going to raise rates, so I don't think the likelihood is impacted. But also, if consumers are forced to spend more of their diminishing incomes on health care, they have less money to spend on other things. So rising health care costs and other costs will slow consumer spending, which weakens the economy and undermines employment. So if the Fed is worried about employment and economic growth, higher inflation actually is an impediment to those things. And so may uh, be another reason that we end up getting a QE4. Now, the Fed followed this up right with a press conference, Janet Yellen, uh, was was in Rhode Island giving a talk later that afternoon, and all of the media coverage was on, well, you know, Janet Yellen promises to raise rates. She did nothing of the sort. It was the same old, uh, same old. She said that higher rates would be appropriate later this year. She didn't say when. She didn't say June. She just said later this year, provided that the economy continues to improve along the lines that the Fed expects. Now, exactly what those lines are, we don't know because the Fed doesn't want to tell us because they don't want to put their put themselves in a corner, right, where they actually have to raise rates. But again, if Janet Yellen really intended to raise rates, she wouldn't uh, make it contingent on the economy continuing to improve. She would say, look, the economy is strong enough. We're going to raise rates. You know, it doesn't really matter what the data is. I mean, we've had enough good data that even if we get some bad data, you know, we're still going to raise rates. That's not what she's saying. And, of course, if she really wanted to raise rates, she wouldn't be talking about raising rates at all. She would have raised them. Again, the main reason she wants to talk about raising rates is to pretend that she can and to try to pretend that the economy is stronger than it is. That's part of the open mouth operation. Uh, Rather than acknowledging how weak the economy is, and I mentioned before in this podcast, now they want to go back and change the way they calculate GDP so they can continue the pretense on a a whole nother level. But they also don't want to admit that raising rates is impossible without pricking the bubble that they don't want to admit exists. So the last thing they really want to do is raise rates. But also, you know, by getting everybody so excited about a rate hike and so convinced that it's coming— When the Fed actually calls it off, right, when they have to acknowledge that they are surprised by some unexpected weakness in the economy, right, that just merely postponing the rate hike that everybody think is inevitable, that in and of itself may count as an easing. I mean, it may buy the Fed some time uh, between the calling off or the postponement of the rate hike and the launching of QE4, right, which is, of course, the Fed's game plan, it's all about extend and pretend. Whatever they can do to delay the inevitable, slow down the process, 
they're going to do. But the fact that inflation is heating up just as the economy is cooling down should not be a positive sign. I mean, this is stagflation, right? Why are they going to be happy about that? Because all the economic data has been soft, and now we're getting higher inflation news. What's ironic, too, is when the media describes the higher inflation news, they put that in the context of good news, right? Because the Fed has said, hey, we want more inflation. And so if we've got more inflation, that must be good news. No, no, that's bad news. The last thing that Americans want to hear who are struggling to get by on their uh, part-time jobs and their minimum wage, the last thing they want to know is the cost of living is going to go up. But somehow this is uh, considered good news. But I want to get to the economic news that came out yesterday, because yesterday was probably one of the worst days for economic news. I think we had about maybe seven or eight reports that came out, and every single one was negative except for the leading economic indicators, which was positive, but that could very well be misleading. But let's go into the other data points that came out yesterday to have an idea of just, of just how weak the, the economy is. First, we got the unemployment numbers. And this is the first time in a few weeks that the weekly unemployment numbers actually came out higher than they were expecting. We got 274,000 claims uh, up from 264,000 last week. Uh, They were expecting a rise to 270. This is still a very low number. But again, as I postulated on an earlier podcast, one of the main reasons that so few people are being fired is because so few people are being hired. You can't lose a job unless you get a job. And if nobody is getting hired, then it stands to reason that fewer people would be getting fired. Nobody is really talking about that aspect of it. We also got the uh, Chicago uh, Fed National Activities Index, and that was down really big in March, down 0.42. Now, they revised it to a slightly less horrendous drop of 0.36, still a very big drop for um, April. But everybody was looking for April to bounce back. They were looking for positive 0.1, didn't get it, another negative. They got negative 0.15 for that index. And this is, uh, and and the three-month moving average now is down to minus 0.23. So more bad news coming out of the Chicago uh, index. But then we got the PMI. This is the PMI for May. Now we're talking about May number. The April number was 54.2. They were expecting it to rise to 54.6. Uh-uh. Unexpectedly, right, declined to 53.8. Right? This is now the lowest level in 16 months, 16 months. So lower than it was, obviously, at any point during the cold days of winter, right? And it was led lower by tumbling of the new orders. Also, just on a lighter note, Bloomberg Consumer Comfort Index, which comes out weekly, continued to slide again down another week, uh, down to uh, 42.4 from 43.5. This is the week ending May 17th. So that series continues to deteriorate. We also got the Philadelphia Fed. This is another May number. And last month, it was seven and a half, right, which was below estimates at the time. And they were looking for a bounce back to eight. Didn't get it. Instead, we went down again to 6.7 
for the Philly Fed. Uh, we're just off now a 15-month low in that index, and we've now missed expectations five out of the last six months. That number has come in below estimates. Then after that, we got existing home sales, another uh, bad number. They were looking for an improvement over the March level. And these are existing home sales. So this is most of the homes that sell are not new homes. Uh, that's a small part of the market. The big enchilada is the existing homes, the ones that have already been built and are on the resale market, right, from current owners. And they were looking for an improvement from March. March, they had uh, 5.19 million, which was actually revised upwards slightly to 5.21. They were looking for a move up to 5.22 million units. Instead, we dropped down to 5.04 million. That was below the lowest range of the estimates. That was a 3.3% drop on the month. Year over year, uh, existing home sales are now up just 6.1%, uh, where the prior month they were up 10.4%. Uh, so that number... Uh, is dropping. And then we also got Kansas City uh, Federal Reserve Manufacturing Index. That one was minus seven last month in April. They were looking for a slight improvement to minus two. Didn't happen. It worsened again. We actually got minus 13, right? Unexpectedly weakened. And it has now gone down, right? The number has gotten lower for five consecutive months, right? And the current drop, the drop from last month to this month, is the biggest drop since April of 2009, right, during the Great Recession. And the absolute level that we're at right now, this is the lowest level since April of, of 2009. So again, here we have horrible economic data, right? Data that's so bad that you have to go all the way back to the Great Recession to find data that's comparable. And inflation is getting worse, right? The inflation is picking up despite the fact that the economy is slowing down. And somehow this is supposed to be good news. Somehow we're supposed to look at this as, as, as victory for the Federal Reserve that we're now moving into stagflation. Now, even in Janet Yellen's talk, she did also go out of her way to discredit the 5.4% unemployment by acknowledging, again, that the number, uh, it, there's more than meets the eye here, because she did acknowledge all the discouraged workers who are not in the labor force because they don't believe there's any jobs for them. They would want jobs, but they just don't think they're there. Uh, so she mentioned that they're there and they should they're not being counted. She also acknowledged the large number of Americans who are reluctantly working part time, uh, but who would like to work full time, but have been unable to find full time jobs. So she mentioned that the existence of this, you know, uh, you know, hidden uh, labor force, the stealth labor force does indicate excess slack in the labor market and that the economy is not quite as strong as we think. Why did she go out of her way to acknowledge that, right? If she was so uh, hell-bent on raising interest rates come hell or high water, uh, she wouldn't be uh, raising these concerns. Also, the, the numbers, right, the labor force participation rate is not improving. It's near the lows, right? And the number of Americans not in the workforce is in the highs. So if Janet Yellen is saying, hey, I'm not going to raise rates until this situation changes, 
At this point, there's no indication that it's going to change. In fact, all indications are that it is going to go in uh, the in this continue in the same direction. You know, especially now where you have all of these low skilled, uh, uh, you know, jobs in jeopardy, where you have I mentioned you have cities like Los Angeles uh, raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour, even though it's not raising to $15 an hour right away, it's already set in stone on a timetable. And that will discourage new businesses from starting up, certainly in areas like Los Angeles. But as this, you know, $15 an hour, you know, fever, you know, catches on in other cities. I mean, a lot of businesses are going to be taken aback and are going to be very reluctant to start up knowing that they're going to need a lot of low-skilled workers and they're really not going to have any low-skilled workers available because it may not be viable to employ them if you have to pay them $15 an hour. In fact, you know, in Los Angeles, you know, you're talking about raising the minimum wage to such a degree that you're now, you know, I think half the people in the city are employed for less than $15 an hour. You know, and there are people that think, well, we have no precedent for what's going to happen with minimum wage hike that big. We do have precedent in our own country, both in Puerto Rico uh, way back in the 30s and in American Samoa more recently. And we know that it's decimating to your economy. You have 20, 30 percent unemployment when you do something like that. And uh, and so those things could happen in our big cities. Now, of course, as I said before, if these rate hikes are confined geographically to cities, then a lot of those jobs could move to the outskirts of those towns or neighboring towns. But a lot of these people may not be very mobile uh, and they may not have the financial means to commute to one of these low paying jobs. And of course, you know, if you've got a low paying job, you know, you, you can't really afford a big commute because you're going to end up losing or giving up uh, most of your income just in transportation costs. So a lot of these people might actually have to move from the city if they can afford to do that. But of course, too, if you're eroding the number of employed people, you are eroding the tax base. You know, it's funny how these uh, proponents of this $15 an hour minimum wage are saying, well, you know, all these companies are making it so difficult because their employees are on food stamps or public assistance, and it's the fault of the employer for not paying them enough. You know, if the employer wasn't paying them anything, then they would have to get even more public assistance. At least the employer is helping out with a minimum wage job to try to vilify these employers and say, hey, you know, you guys are the bad guys because you're not paying these people enough. They should stand up and say, well, at least we're paying them something. Who else is creating jobs for low-skilled people? Because if the, if the employers that are hiring these low-skilled people, if they weren't there, then it would be even more expensive to take care of the people who are currently at least getting some income. Now, maybe their income isn't sufficient for their needs, but it's better than nothing, which is what they're going to get if they're forced to pay them $15 an hour. Because for most employers, it's not, well, you know, I got to pay these people $15 an hour. You know, it's well, either, you know, I, I just don't hire them at all. Right. You can mandate a minimum wage, but you can't require anybody to actually pay it because ultimately the employer decides, is it worth paying some unskilled worker $15 an hour? Now, in some cases, it will be the case, uh, but in many cases it won't be. And of course, the the character of the employees will change. So let's say, you know, I am, uh, you know, working. I own a McDonald's right now and I, I currently have a bunch of employees that I'm paying uh, $8 an hour, and now I have to pay him $15 an hour. Am I just going to give all my $8 an hour employees a raise to $15 an hour? Not at all. I'm probably going to hire totally different people because 
the people who require $15 an hour won't work for $8 an hour. So my, my labor pool, my job applicant, right, my talent pool that I'm drawing from is diminished because the people that want 11 12 13 14 $15 an hour, they're not applying for the jobs at McDonald's. So the people who get $8 an hour, they're not competing with people who are working on the caliber of $15 an hour. But once you force McDonald's to pay $15 an hour, now there's going to be a lot of candidates for that job that previously wouldn't have been interested in it. Because, you know, there's not a lot of stress in the McDonald's, McDonald's job. It's probably a lot easier to do than a lot of other jobs that currently pay $15 an hour. And so that's going to happen. People are going to start hiring better educated burger flippers, maybe more attractive, you know, nicer looking women to ring the cash registers uh, than they're hiring now because, you know, you have to pay up for people. They're going to come up, you know, they're going to wear nice clothes. But the bottom line is the employers are going to expect a lot more from people they pay $15 an hour than people they may pay 7 or $8 an hour. That's just the way it's going to be. So all these people who are so excited about the $15 an hour minimum wage, most of them are not going to be employed long enough to receive it uh, because the employers are going to up the quality of their workforce as they downsize the number. Because, too, as they start hiring more competent people, those people are probably going to be more efficient at their jobs, too. They'll be able to work faster, be more productive than the lower place people. And, of course, ultimately, the real movement is going to be towards automation, towards robotics uh, and things like that as employers look to substitute capital, computers, technology for ever-increasing labor costs. And, again, it's not just that $15 an hour. It's the workman's comp. It's you know the disability, the Social Security, the liability, all the headaches that come with hiring people are eliminated if you just automate. But all this stuff is going to happen to undermine the economic recovery that Janet Yellen is still pretending exists. So she can continue to pretend that her monetary policy worked. And so she continued to posture as if the Fed has the ability and the inclination to actually raise interest rates when they really can't do that. Now, there are people that might say, well, you know, Peter, you know, what if they actually do raise rates, right? Then it proves that you're wrong. It doesn't prove that I'm wrong because I'm not saying that it's impossible that the Fed will raise rates slightly. In fact, Janet Yellen went out of her way to say that if we do raise rates, we're going to be very cautious about raising them again, that we're not on a glide path or a, a trajectory like we like, you know, Greenspan was when he raised rates every meeting in a measured pace. Janet Yellen went out of her way to say that the Fed was going to continue to be data dependent. In other words, patient, right, that we might raise rates one time. And then that'll be it, one and done, or we'll raise rates and then we'll say, OK, we're going to wait for the data and it'll be like waiting for Godot. The reason I think that that is less likely, I'm not saying it's impossible that the Fed couldn't you know, do that as a head fake. Like, oh, OK, we're going to raise rates as if they actually did something. I just think that that is a riskier strategy for the Fed than not raising rates at all, because I think if they raise rates even to a quarter of a point, and then the markets tank or the economy goes back into a recession, they look even more foolish because now they have to acknowledge that their last rate hike was wrong, right? That they were uh, premature, that they acted hastily. And in fact, if they raise rates a little bit and then the markets tank and the economy rolls over and they want to blame it on the rate hike, then it makes the Fed look even weaker in their ability to raise rates in the future, which exposes the fallacy of this whole recovery. So I think it's better for the Fed to continue to not raise rates at all, pretend they're going to do it, and then if the data 
uh, they can always take, blame the data. You know, hey, we were going to do it. We were ready to do it. But then unexpectedly, this thing happened. And so now we have to delay the hike. I just think that's going to be an easier way for the Fed to save face. Now, some people think, well, if they don't raise rates, they lose face because they've been promising a rate hike. That's the key. They haven't actually promised to do anything because they've always made it data dependent without defining exactly what the data is that they're depending on, because they can they can read it any way they want. They can massage it however they want so that they can always have an excuse not to raise rates, theoretically, uh, without losing face. Hello, this is Peter Schiff. I bet you didn't know that without silver, you wouldn't be hearing this podcast right now or be able to use a computer at all. From laptops to smartphones to TVs to speakers, virtually all modern electronics use silver to conduct electricity. Did you know that the average solar panel uses two-thirds of an ounce of silver to function? And the solar industry is expanding dramatically, not just in America, but in booming developing nations like China and India. Silver is naturally antibacterial and is used extensively in modern medicine. Silver coatings are being added to breathing tubes, bandages, catheters, and other medical instruments to reduce the spread of infections. When antibiotics fail, silver still works. I believe the 21st century will be the century of silver. As fiat currencies continue to collapse and new uses are found for silver every day, the white metal's strong industrial demand and low per ounce price will make it increasingly attractive to savers around the world. At today's prices, people of any age and background can afford to buy some silver. Learn why silver is a smart and reliable investment in my free special report, The Powerful Case for Silver. Visit shiftsilver.com and download it now. The Powerful Case for Silver includes information about silver's amazing chemical properties. It also explains why I believe silver may outperform gold in the coming years. Download The Powerful Case for Silver and educate yourself, your friends, and your family about the white metal. Just visit shiftsilver.com to download my free report. That's shiftsilver.com.